This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Jared Ferris. How you doing, Jared? Pretty, pretty well. How about yourself? Not bad. And today we'll be talking about uh, what's happening with JavaScript in 2016. So, Jared, before we get started with our JavaScript discussion, why don't you uh, kick things off with a, a little uh, about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I'm I'm a I've been a developer for a long time in a lot of languages. Um, right now, my main role uh, is the Microsoft Practice Director at HMB. So, we're a regional IT services company. We'd say we kind of focus on the Heartland region, which is a Microsoft term for Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan. Um, and I'm also a Microsoft MVP. Uh, they they renamed these recently, so I think I'm like Visual Studio and Development, but I kind of associate with the Edge team, um, front-end web development. Uh, and I blog at jaredthenerd.com if anyone's interested in reading random things about IT or woodworking or whatever else I feel like blogging about. <laughs> and uh, I've known you for a little while, Jared, so you're selling yourself short, buddy. Um, I know you do some conference uh, talks and um, speak at meetup groups, and there's also some conferences that you help Organized, is that right? Yeah, I should probably uh, I should probably promote the conferences. So I'm I'm involved. I've been for the last couple of years in a conference in Columbus called Sturtrek, um, which is about 1,500 attendees. Um, we have great turnout. I'm involved in Cloud Develop, which is a one-day cloud computing kind of cross-platform conference. I also help a little bit with Dog Food, which is a Microsoft-focused cross-technology conference that has everything from ALM, SQL, infrastructure, Dev, um, and yeah, I kind of make the circuits in the Midwest. Um, try to show up and hang out with people. So, Yeah, if you've been to uh, the Dayton, Columbus, Ohio areas, you, you may have actually bumped into Jared and his wife out uh, working conferences and giving sessions and stuff. Uh, so you, you and your wife are both uh, very nice people to uh, talk to and, and hear speak. And uh, we, we, you know, Ed's the community appreciates uh, your hard work. So thank you. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. So. So uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about some uh, JavaScript uh, current features and future features. Uh, so why don't we kick things off with um, uh, what's what's going on with uh, the remainder of ES 2015? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. That I know you've you've talked on the podcast before about ES 2015 or ES6. Um, it's it's evolving. The the browsers are up to I want to say around ninety percent feature compliance for the modern uh, evergreen browsers and um, the, you know, the ones that are updating constantly. Uh, but that means there's still about 10% of the features that aren't aren't fully baked yet. Um, the big one that I think we're going to start seeing support for soon is modules, so importing and exporting of JavaScript, similar to um, like Require.js or uh, some of the other patterns that are out there, but being a common language feature. So that, that just recently, uh, I want to say in the last couple of weeks, uh, the Edge team announced that they're starting to support that, and ES6 modules have some support in the newest Insider build, which you can, if you're running Windows Insider on Windows 10, you can get you know stuff that are weeks or months ahead of time. I think they're the first browser to support it, but I would expect Firefox and Chrome to start supporting modules, I would think, in the next couple of months. Um, that is, I think, the last major remaining ES2015 feature out there. So how does the spec go? How would you go about adding modules? Has that been surfaced yet? 
Yeah, um, the best blog for that is probably the developer.mozilla.org blog, and um, it, they have sort of a rundown of the import and export methods. Um, so that might be something we can put in the show notes. But the 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 basic concept here is instead of having to load all of your JavaScript at runtime all the time, um, or I'm sorry, at page load time, you can export things from JavaScript files and then import them dynamically as needed. So somebody clicks on a a link and you open a window, you could pull something in then, or you get a, an event from a server, push event or a WebSocket event, and you need to process that, you could load JavaScript at that point. And there's more you can do with it, but that's the general kind of idea. And the two main keywords are import and export, which I think would do kind of what you'd expect them to do. I think you touched on something interesting there. Um, when you, th you know, you might think of server-side development and modules, uh, one thing that you're certainly not thinking about is pulling something in dynamically at runtime. So, you know, JavaScript, that's going to be a little bit of a departure if you're in a browser and you're you're running JavaScript. You may, you may want to actually do that type of activity. Yeah, and I think it probably depends on which server-side tools you work with. I'd say .NET developers probably aren't real comfortable with dynamic runtime you know, behaviors being injected. Um, Ruby developers might be more comfortable with that. Uh, dynamic languages have been doing this for a while. Um, but it's very useful on the client side of things because your users, you're trying to minimize page load time as much as possible, right? Send as little over the wire as you can. Um, there are a lot of user behaviors that maybe they only they interact with something on your site every hundred times they come to the site or only one percent of your users interact with it. The ability to load that functionality dynamically can be huge. Um, or load the stuff you need for the initial page load and as the rest of the page is processing kind of slide additional functionality in. And I'm sure there's other use cases as well but I think a lot of that comes from the fact that we're pushing bits over the wire and you know somebody on a mobile device might have terrible um, a terrible connection and not a lot of memory. I mean in, traditionally we'd load like jQuery and a bunch of other libraries and just push hundreds of K or maybe even a megabyte of JavaScript over the wire. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think as developers, sometimes we lose focus of those low-powered devices or limited internet connections. Uh, usually, we're kind of spoiled with the latest and greatest technologies, and sometimes we forget about that stuff. Yeah, we test on our boxes, which tend to be very nice developer machines and fairly modern phones. Um, and it's, e it's even worse if you're supporting people outside of, let's say, like the Western Hemisphere or, or Western Europe. Um, the there are a lot of people in developing countries who still use feature phones or maybe they're Android devices but with minimal specs. Uh, their experience is very different from what we we get on LTE with a iPhone 6 or something like that. Hey, it works on my machine. What can I say? Exactly. <laughs> uh, so is there any timeline as to when modules might be official or is this kind of speculation? I don't know that there is. I mean, they're part of the standard now. So in the standard bodies, and maybe we talk about this more later, they're made up of browser vendors as well as researchers and others. Um, so those don't really become part of the standards body or standards document unless they agree they're going to implement them. But I think this has been, there have been a lot of complexities in it. So with Edge having support coming out in the next um, Insider Flight, my guess is by year-end, you'll be able to use these in modern browsers and then use a polyfill or something else to support previous ones. Great. So that would be like one of the final ES 2015 features, right? Yeah, there are some other things um, that are kind of 
wonky stuff, but that's the main one that I hear people kind of asking about and they seem to have an interest in. So what are we looking forward to in ES2016 then? Uh, ES, so ES2015 had, I don't know, 30 features. ES26 has two. So um, I don't know if you touched on this before, but would it be worth kind of talking about the new cadence of, of these releases? Yeah, we can touch on that again. I, I don't think we may have covered it completely before. Okay, so the, the way JavaScript or ECMAScript used to evolve was these like five to ten year release cycles where they, they defined a ton of features and they wanted to ship them. And there's good timelines you can find out on the internet of these. Um, with ES2015, I want to keep calling it ES6, with ES2015 they said, okay, well, after this we're going to go to a yearly release cadence. Um, all the browsers are shipping new features regularly. There's things coming into JavaScript from the web standards groups that need to get updated frequently. So instead of, we'll ship this when it's done, let's evolve to a more kind of living standard um, with regular cadences. So going forward, they expect to release one release a year. Um, and basically, they have um, the TC, um, it's like TC39, the task group that manages the standard. They have four stages of, like, this is a, an idea to this is fully baked in the standard. Whenever they have their cutoff date for the year, anything that's stage four, goes out. So this year it's two things, array.prototype.includes and an exponentiation operator. And actually I think like the next version of build or of edge actually supports both of these. Chrome already supports both of these. Um, they're pretty small. So ES2015 is this gigantic bundle of stuff that isn't even fully done yet. Next year's features are two pretty simple features. Would it be worth kind of talking through what they do? Oh, absolutely. Go for it. So um, the Let's maybe start with exponentiation, because that's almost kind of trivial. Um, there's a double asterisk operator, a star star. Um, if you do two star star two, it returns four. So it's just it's syntactic sugar for math.pow for um, just taking something's exponent. That's the, the smaller of the two that got included. Um, the slightly larger is array.includes, which just lets you query an array and ask if it includes something else. So if you have an array of integers and you say dot includes parentheses one of the numbers, it'll return true or false. And that's that's literally the most uh, complex thing that's shipped in the next in this year's features. Wow. But there's some there's some <laughs> interesting kind of pieces to that. So um, the, that kind of caused a pretty big I don't say scandal um discussion about how standards should evolve um, and about what it would mean to break the web that I think is pretty interesting. Hmm. So, yeah, like, what, what you're talking about seems somewhat trivial to me, so can you explain more how this would break the web? Yeah, so um, the initial proposal, and these proposals come in from volunteers, and um, there are people from Mozilla and um, Microsoft and Chrome that are on these boards, but other people are as well. Um, and the initial proposal was array.contains, uh, which matches a lot of other languages. Is That's just kind of a normal you know, keyword for this. Uh, it turned out that MooTools, which is probably a name people haven't heard for a while, um, had already bolted on .contains to the array prototype. So MooTools was pretty big, I don't know, five, ten years ago? Mm -hmm, yeah. um, I feel like I heard about it before jQuery even. I don't know if that's if that's yeah. right or not. But, I've, I've actually um, used it on uh, some Joomla work I've done a long time ago. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been out there. Well, it's still on something like 3.5 million websites, right? They're not ones being actively maintained, but they're out there. 
and it already has a .contains behavior that does something a little bit different. And they realized if they shipped this feature, as soon as the browser supported it, they broke like three and a half million websites. Um, and a quote I read from Jason Orendorf, I think is how you pronounce it. He's a Mozilla JavaScript engine, engineer guy. Um, in, in this discussion thread talking about what they should do, he said, you're telling me I should ship a browser that chokes on thousands of websites that work fine today? That'd be bad for our users, so I'm not planning on doing that. It's interesting because the standards body could say, hey, array.contains is the new method, but it doesn't matter if the browser vendors don't implement it. Um, so there was a back and forth. They discussed whether they should just table this until Mutual's updated, but they realized that likely, you know, th out of three and a half million websites, two and a half million of them are just abandoned that are never going to be touched again. And there's not a, there's no small fix that could do that. So what they, their compromise was, we'll use a different name that is still pretty good to make sure we don't just break the web and cause things that worked yesterday to suddenly stop working. And, and I think that's interesting because that's a different way of handling the web than you would say, like, the new version of C Sharp's coming out and Microsoft kind of runs it and they can kind of do what they want and everyone either upgrades or doesn't. Well, the web's not really like that. Your browser tomorrow might support something it doesn't today and you don't have any control of that. Yeah, it seems like, and I may be speaking out of turn here because I don't quite grasp the whole story, but it seems like to me there's a, like a namespacing issue. Yeah, exactly. They People were bolting on keywords or, or functions to things where there weren't before, thinking, hey, I can just extend this. And it, it basically, it is kind of a namespacing issue. Oh, they're not using this this section of the namespace. We'll go ahead and fill it with something. Now there's 3 million websites that rely on that word being there. And if you replace it with a you know a language keyword, their behaviors break. Um, it's sort of like tacking things in the global namespace. And then later on in your code, you put something else in the global namespace, and you step on that, except for the entire web. <laughs> It's just a little problem. Yeah, exactly. And and I think this will this has probably happened before, but this is the one that I was aware of where they said, even though we might want to have a perfect standard that's clean, that is concise, we also realize that we're in this evolving web and we can't just make these changes that, you know, break enterprise websites that have been functional for 10 years. Um, if, if Mozilla did it first, it's a little bit of a like a game theory thing. If Mozilla did it first and broke all these websites, then all the enterprises would say, quit using Firefox. Um, and then the first person that does this, they lose, right? And everyone moves to another browser. Um, so either all of the browsers would have to make this breaking change at once, or none of them made it. And, and the decision they made was dot includes is pretty close to dot contains. Let's just use that. Wow, that's it's interesting. That's a perspective I haven't really thought of uh, with all this stuff before. And I think the the fact that JavaScript is um, a dynamic language, and you know you can do that to the namespace, and then we have all the browsers to deal with, kind of surfaces something like this. Yeah, it, it it's happened in other directions before too. I, I think it was Chrome, but I'm not I'm not 100 sure of this. Um, that had released an earlier version of WebSockets before the standard was completed, and and the Chrome team was on the standards body. And they released it, and they got feedback, real actual user feedback. Standards changed. Chrome had to change their implementation to match the standard. And a lot of those early developers who were already using this prototype thing in production got really upset because they moved it. Right? They moved their cheese, and uh, this didn't work the way they wanted to anymore. So there's kind of there's two sides. There's like, what's the standard say and what the browsers are doing? And they don't always line up perfectly. Um, and, and I think that's kind of unique to the web space. 
So you got just just the two features in ES twenty sixteen, but it sounds like um, there was a lot of planning that had to go behind uh, this one small one. Yeah, and and it's not probably not fair to say that the, those are the only two things the browsers are implementing because um, there's also things coming in from the the standards bodies that control uh, HTML um, and the way TCP/IP works that are probably worth talking about too. Um, so maybe should we talk about like the Fetch API and web and service workers a little bit? Sure. So Fetch API is very interesting to me. Um, anyone who's done AJAX calls before has done one of two things. They've, they've built it from scratch and they've used, was it XHR or whatever? It's, it's really messy. Um, or they've used a library that supported it. And so the first one that comes to mind when I think of AJAX is jQuery, right? That was the, like, when I first used jQuery, the two things it was amazing for were finding elements in the DOM and AJAX. Um, and we, we would pull in this gigantic library to do those two things. So the Fetch API is sort of a standardization of what the browsers are doing anyway. So they already the browser already does a Fetch if you have an image tag or a, a source tag, um, anything that has to pull another resource. It, it already had an implementation where it did a request for that resource and got a response. All right, so that's happening, but you had those and then you had AJAX. So the Fetch API is a standardized way of managing all requests and responses, um, whether it's something the, the browser does just automatically because of the page or something you do in code. Um, it, there's basically a fetch method, um, and then you send it a URL. That creates a request object that you has various properties. You can kind of check on the status of the request, and it returns a response. Uh, it turns, returns a promise, so that, that was an ES2015 feature of promises. Um, that you can then attach extra behavior to. So you can say, fetch this resource, and then when it finishes, do X, Y, or Z. If there's an error, do something else. Um, so this standardized API makes it possible for you to get resources using really simple syntax and kind of have consistent behavior, whether the browser's pulling an image or you're pulling a script file or, or something else. Um, that, that alone could alleviate the need for jQuery and probably like a third of the projects out there that use it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, use for AJAX calls out of jQuery. I know I've done quite a bit of that myself. Yeah, and, and there's times where I've bolted jQuery in just to get that functionality, which is adding, I don't know, how big is jQuery now? It's, it's a lot of kilobytes of data. Um, interesting thing about the Fetch API is that's a JavaScript feature, so you're going to be able to use it in JavaScript, but it doesn't come from the ECMAScript standards body. So that comes from a group called WhatWG. I don't know if that's pronounced differently. Um, and they're a group that maintains kind of a living standard for HTML. So they're sort of a competitor to W3C, um, but their standard is kind of the constantly evolving, um, you know, we'll add new features as we add new features standard for the web. So they manage that, uh, the Fetch API. So if Fetch API is doing like Ajaxy type calls, uh, what, uh, what's the difference between that and web workers and service workers? Uh, yeah, good question. So web workers and service workers, I think, are named in a way that is a little confusing. So um, let's, maybe the next logical thing from Fetch API is service worker. So service worker um, is something that you can't really quite use yet. There's partial support in Firefox and Chrome, and um, the Edge team, I think, just recently announced that it's under development. So on their um, developer.microsoft.com, they have it listed as in development. Um, the idea behind a service worker is instead of having to send out your AJAX calls in 
kind of your normal code flow, um, you can build a background service to handle those. So you can do a couple things. You can say, I have a service worker to handle loading images for an image gallery. Um, when the page loads, you can send that off asynchronously. It can load up stuff into cache, and it might even say, okay, you're going to show, image gallery is a good example, because you say, okay, there's, or maybe, yeah, image gallery, there's three images showing, but there's a left and right arrow, and we have another 15 images back there. Your service worker could load the three that have to show now, return back an event that says, hey, this is ready, and then it could continue to load the rest of those images into the cache without making the browser wait, um, and your mainline JavaScript can continue to execute. Um, so basically, it's an asynchronous process for loading data or caching data, and then if you want to make a request, you could call the service worker and say, I, I would like the next thing, and it can look, depending on how you code it, it could look at its internal cache, return from cache, decide to get a clean copy because the cache is dated, um, or do something else entirely. So it's really a background process just for handling this I.O. between the browser and the server. Um, and it, that's something I expect we'll have support for before the end of the year. Yeah, that's something that it sounds like um, I've, I've written some hacks to do similar stuff before. So it's nice to see like an official way to, to tackle that kind of a problem. And I think that's why that got prioritized by the standards body, because it seems like they... They, they want to do one of two things. Um, they want to add features that everyone has had to build a hack for, like classes in JavaScript. Everyone had their own version of it. Um, a, uh, asynchronous calls for data. Or they want to build things that are just kind of core language components that JavaScript's missing, like promises. Um, I don't know that everyone was building their own promise library, but it's something that kind of modern languages need. And I, I feel like the service worker was something we were, we all had our own implementation of. And so now there's going to be a standard one that just kind of works and performs well. Um, Web workers are a little different. They, you can pretty much use these today. Um, the idea behind a web worker is for background tasks that are computationally expensive. You can spin up another, effectively like multi-threading, and let these things run without causing the main browser to slow down. Um, so number crunching, certainly if you're building browser games, um, but I'd imagine if you just had a big complex financial application. Um, I don't know if Google Docs does this, but let's say you're working on a spreadsheet and you make a change and a bunch of calculations have to happen, a web worker would be a great place for that. Interesting. Um, yeah, you know, we, we kind of see this stuff on the server side, um, and it, like, once again, it's, it's not a problem when you're working on the server. You've got, you know, the full horsepower and uh, multi-threading, and, you know, depending on what language you're running in, you can do most of this type of thing. Uh, but when you get into browser territory, all bets are off. Yeah, and the worst user experience you can have is somebody clicks and their browser freezes for five seconds while you're doing something. Um, and so the idea behind, I, I guess behind both a web worker and a service worker, but definitely for a web worker, is that the browser should still respond, users can do other stuff, and then you know you can have an event fire when it's done calculating and um, pick up where you kind of left off. So the user's experience isn't really hindered. You know, maybe you show them a, this is processing, you know, icon or something on on a, a certain container or something, but they can still scroll and interact with the page rather than just freezing. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to name any names, but uh, there were quite a few of us yesterday, or the day before, at the end of the month, working in a um, a expense reporting system. And uh, I think something like this could have been helpful to <laughs> to that expense reporting system. So we we were all dying <laughs> behind our PCs trying to get yeah. work done. Uh, yeah, and it's probably even worse if the server's 
having trouble keeping up. And you know, the, when the devs tested in development, it takes a half a second to run, but in production, it, it takes thirty seconds because everyone's using it the same day. Yep. Um, so, so what type of uh, TC uh, PIP changes have happened in this next release? Yeah, um, the the big thing there is HTTP two, and that's sort of sort of separate from JavaScript, um, but I think it's interesting. It kind of changes the way we do some of the other web things that we're doing, and it's not. This isn't. This has been out for a little while, but it seems like um, all the browsers are kind of supporting it now, and server vendors are supporting it. I've heard that Windows Azure websites, if they don't already, are going to let you do this. Um, so the idea there, and this is yet another standards body, um, it's the IETC, Internet Engineering Task Force, that kind of owns this. Um, they, they took the Speedy protocol that Google released a few years ago, um, and Google launched this. They implemented it with their tools in Chrome and had a lot of good user data. Um, and they made a full standard that everyone can implement. And the idea behind HTTP2 is they change the way data is sent over the wire. So if you've opened up like the dev tools in Chrome or, or Edge or something else, and you go to the network tab and you load a page, you'll you know, normally see the index file load, and then you'll see five or six or however many um, other connections load. Right? And it goes out and gets uh, script tags, and it gets style sheets, and it pulls down images. Um, and they're all sent plain text. So HTTP2... Um, a lot of that data is going to be sent binary, which I guess is going to make it faster over the wire. But the, the big win is it'll multiplex the connections. So instead of having to open six connections to your server and have your server's connection pool use up six of those, and then one at a time get files over the wire, it will just start requesting files and take in, um, I don't know if it's an infinite number or just a really large number of simultaneous streams, so over a single connection. So what can happen uh, is instead of having to bundle, let's say, like 10 JavaScript files into one file, so it's a single connection, they could all still be separate on the server, sent across multiplexed, um, and, and the benefit there is it can be cached individually. So, you know, right now a lot of people will bundle their, their JavaScript and they'll put, um, like, a GUID in the file name or something, and when they make a change to one of any of their scripts, they update a new, a new bundle. So now anytime a user goes to their page, if anything has changed, they get all of the JavaScript again or all of the CSS again. You don't have to do that anymore because these things can be kind of handled individually. There's no overhead for them being some individual files. The browser can get, or the, the response to the browser can say, hey, you're going to pull down these 20 files. Uh, the browser can check the cache status of each of them and only pull down the one unique one they need, the one that's changed. Um, so that should speed up returning to individual pages or if things like um, shared resources and CDNs that a lot of people use so that the first page load for a user to your site can be significantly faster. Do you know what is needed for this to take place? Like, uh, the browser needs to be updated for one. I, I can kind of get, you know, get that from it. Uh, is there something that has to be implemented server-side, and yep. is there something in the application itself? Um, it depends on the language, whether the application cares. There, there almost always is something server-side. Um, like, for instance, I, I think this was something where if you were running IIS local, like last year, you could configure it, and, and this gets out of my area of expertise. Of uh, I'm not a server admin, but I think you could run it. There, some of the cloud service providers didn't have it supported yet. Um, for the multiplexing, I don't think you had to do much in the application, but there were limitations. Um, not every network appliance supports it, and so if any network appliance, like router or whatever, between the server and the client doesn't support HTTP/2 um, for whatever reason. 
then it would fall back to the old method, um, or that was the goal. So you weren't supposed to just force your users to switch. You're supposed to build it so they could use the new method, and then you had a fallback. That I think is the the, the thing slowing down the the uptake of this is that there's just a lot of things that are outside of your control. Um, but I, I believe kind of the internet infrastructure is getting updated over time, and they're starting to support this. In local like networks, if you're building enterprise apps, you have a lot more control of kind of how your your internal networking works. But there's a there's an end to end thing because this is a protocol change, and again, this is outside of my area of expertise. My understanding is some types of devices don't care; it's just packets they're pushing. But that devices that analyze the network traffic, the ones that would actually like read the HTTP or um, the TCP/IP packets and make decisions like quality of service, those are the ones that would tend to break. Um, that, that I don't know much more than that. Yeah, what what kind of provoked that question is I'm thinking. Uh, you know, from past WordPress experience, like if you've ever worked on any kind of WordPress project, uh, bundling, not so much of a, <laughs> a practice, let's just say that, uh, you right. could have, you know, it, it wouldn't be exaggerating to say there's 20, 30 uh, JavaScript and CSS files being, you know, shoved in the head of the document. Um, so it's kind of leaves me curious uh, if by not actually changing your code or um, doing any kind of major server overhaul, if those type of people will see a substantial increase in um, or decrease rather in page load times without actually doing any work. I think they will, but again, they, it probably depends on your application server and and. You know, whether if you're running an IIS or you're running an Apache or something else, whether that supports it, and and a bunch of other variables. Um, there's a demo HTTP2demo.io that I, I love because I think it's it visually kind of shows you how this works. Um, and what, for whatever reason, whatever they're running on, all the way through me, uh, through my connection, work it works just fine. When you run this on the left side of the screen, it loads um, almost like an image map, a ton of images, and they kind of have to load one at a time. I think you know it, it uses up the six connections it's allowed. It downloads the first six images, then it does the next six, and it times it. So it shows you, hey, this took 30 seconds to load this entire grid of images. Then you hit a button, and it uses HTTP2 from another server and loads this, basically the same grid of images, but it loads them uh, multiplexed, and they load in like a quarter of the time. And I think that helps kind of visually show you what this is doing. Um, but if you're in the application kind of hosting operations side of things, there's, there's probably a lot of other things you have to worry about that... Um, you know, you'll have to figure out. But this is coming, and I think support for it's going to keep growing. Uh, cloud service providers are adding it, so it's going to make it easier for us to kind of just get these benefits. But there's one other kind of cool thing that does require your application to, to change that you can do in HTTP2, um, and that's called server push. So the idea there is oftentimes, and this might be when you're doing things like, um, let's say, imports with modules, you might know that, hey, the, users, the user loads the initial page, they get the stuff they have to have, their likely next click or interaction is going to require some other assets. Your application can actually proactively push those to the client before they're requested. Um, so the page loads, the user's kind of browsing, they're scrolling around, and unbeknownst to them, they're loading up the, the JavaScript file that they're about to need or the images that are going to show up in the next page. Um, and so this requires both the browser and the server to coordinate. Your application has to kind of know what likely next things would be. Um, and I'm not sure how the implementation of that's working out yet, but you can actually push these things ahead of time, and the browser can cache them without the user having to take any action. 
Yeah, that uh, that sounds like it could be uh, Catch-22, really. I'd have to see some real detailed information on how that takes place. Because you, you certainly would like to alleviate the time that it takes for somebody to load a resource, but you also don't want to send them stuff that they don't need. So, yeah, that's and I think there's probably there's probably going to be some sites that overdo it, and the mobile experience will be bad. Um, but I could see there being, you know, if you had some analytics on your server and you knew that 95% of your users did step two next, um, maybe you proactively send those because it's such a high percentage. Um, so that that's going to be something we have to see evolve, but this the protocol will support it. It sounds like something that's going to require a lot of forethought. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that that does evolve. And uh, speaking of how all these things evolve, um, how how are all these standards created and evolving? You said you wanted to touch on on the standard bodies and and whatnot a little bit. Yeah. So we mentioned some of them already. Um, there's there's a number of them. So TC39 is the ECMAScript group. So they're kind of they're kind of policing the core language, right? The the stuff that's going to be used in JavaScript on server side, client side. They don't really define any of the stuff that relates to, I'd say, like implementations. So like the window or DOM APIs, those are kind of somebody else's concern because JavaScript can be used places where there is no window, there is no DOM. Um, so they're and this kind of applies, I think, to all the standards bodies. They're made up of um, people from the browser vendors who, who definitely have a vested interest in this. There also tend to be like researchers and other people who are just interested in, in spending a lot of time worrying about the standards. Um, so TC39 we mentioned is doing like this yearly release cadence. And so they have a GitHub site where you can see all of the proposals they have and uh, how far along in the, uh, in the process they are. So they're, they're a pretty open body um, and they're having this kind of pretty quick cadence. Uh, WHATWG, um, or what WG, I'm not sure, I've heard this pronounced different ways, they're sort of the upstarts in the HTML space, so they're, um, they're, they have a living standard for HTML, they're the ones that defined, I think, web workers um, and fetch, and they're sort of focusing on, so HTML itself and then the browser APIs. And then you have a competing group, and, and they're forum-based only, I don't think they ever have physical meetings, it's all internet. You have W3C, which is the the big old kind of standards body, and they were releasing, you know, HTML5 was, you know, a big release. They were pushing for kind of milestone releases for the web, and what seemed to have, seems to have happened is that the web's kind of moved beyond that, and um, they're not moving quick enough, and no one's really talking about, is there an HTML6 or HTML7? Now it's sort of like the ever-evolving web presence. Um, there even seems to be a little bit of conflict. Um, one of the Mozilla engineers um, blogged about how the W3C was taking snapshots of the other group's spec and making it their spec, and there actually seems to be a little bit of politics here. So it feels like they're still kind of working out how the standards are evolving. Um, but again, they're, they're made up of kind of academics as well as browser vendors and everyone else. Um, so all these groups are sort of, they're coming up with the standards that they they think they want. So the, a lot of times the browser vendors go into the groups and they say, hey, we're going to build this feature next. What do you guys think? The other the other browser will say, oh, we've been toying with that. Here are the problems we have. And they kind of work through to get a consensus. Um, and then they, they implement it. And other times, like I mentioned with the Speedy protocol, one of the browser vendors says, hey, we're just going to build this in a, in a small case, get some real user data, and bring it back. So there's this kind of 
there's these two kind of cars racing, the, the browser implementations and the standards body, and they just sort of seem to meet up at times. Sometimes one gets ahead of the other, um, but then they all come back together and, and kind of come up with a consensus because it doesn't, you know, if, if Chrome ships a feature, even if developers start implementing it, they only can support, what, a third of the web or half the web at most because um, the other browsers won't have it. So there's a little bit of a game where they have to convince the other browser vendors to implement what they want uh, so that it really does become a standard. So this has been an interesting thing to kind of watch as, as features come and go, experimental flags get added so you can test out things. Um, and as the browser vendors become more open, because they're really sharing what they're working on on their blogs and their, their status sites so that the other vendors can kind of know what direction they're going. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I advocate a lot of uh, prototyping for application development. And, the, and there's something about this that kind of hits home with me where you, you kind of need like that push-pull type of um, uh, workflow where you've got one set of, um, you know, either it's a standard body or the browser vendors uh, where you know, somebody that's not the actual end user is kind of pushing this, you know, this needs to be the standard. And then you have the actual, you know, the users or the browser bodies uh, in this example that are like, hey, but we actually need, you know, this feature. And at some point they actually meet in the middle and, and produce something that everybody actually needs. Yeah, and you have a third peer, uh, peer group in here, a third um, group of people, the developers, right, the people who are actually going to use this. And the interesting and beneficial part of having their kind of standards process be online is they can get feedback. And um, so I think most of the browser vendors have some place where you can kind of vote for things you want to see implemented. And that's useful for them because if they spend, let's say they spend a thousand hours collectively defining some new feature and then nobody cares to build anything with it, they just wasted a lot of money and time. So there's there's that coordination with what the developers are actually going to do. And there's a little bit of the browser vendors want to push kind of forward because they, they want to put new features in that maybe we don't know we need yet. Um, but there's also things like promises that we, we kind of want, and they're not mis maybe the, the flashiest things ever, but they're really useful to developers. So there's a give and take there, and I think as the browser vendors push the boundaries, new things become available to us um, that we don't even know about. And I, I kind of feel like web workers are kind of like that. Like, I don't know that I necessarily need you know, multi-threading on the client side to do computational stuff. But once I have it, what kind of problems can I solve that I couldn't solve before? Um, so there's there's a little bit of give and take between the browsers and the standards and the developers building the actual applications out in the world. Well, I think everybody out there's brains probably full about now. So <laughs> um, with that said, uh, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show, Jared, and talking about all this stuff. Uh, it certainly gives us a lot of insight in what the state of the web is right now. And um, is there is there anything you'd like to give listeners for um, where to find your blog or uh, how to find you on the web and get in touch with you? Yeah, um, so I, I tweet at Jared the Nerd, and my blog is jaredthenerd.com, and those are probably the best places to find me um, and if you're anywhere kind of in the Midwest uh, area you know maybe run into me at a conference and say hello you have any sessions coming up uh, not for a while it's summer kind of slows down a little bit so I get to take it easy for the next couple months but this fall stuff should pick up again all right man you enjoy your summer and uh, thanks for being on the show we appreciate it it's been a blast thanks